Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 15th part in our series, Rome, the Decline of Democracy. Today, we will be discussing just how important interdependence worked within the Roman economy. So, Brett, I guess it's safe to assume that everyone in the empire had a Rome Prime account? They did. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, today, when we think of globalism, we often think of these, these large companies um, kind of like swallowing up mom and pops. We think of things like Coca-Cola. We think of things like Chinese manufacturing. We think of things like Amazon, like you alluded to. Um, but that's not the, the tr like true definition of globalism is is not justified by that. It's it's literally just the operation or planning of economic and foreign policy on a global basis, right? So anything that spans a the globe is globalism. Even things that aren't giant mega corporations, because there certainly weren't really any giant mega corporations in Rome. That wasn't like a thing yet. Would it be fair to say that like it's any economic system that kind of relies on any foreign body outside its, its borders? Like I would imagine, like, for example, for us, you know, we like our American life exists because of China. Like if, if there if, if China was not a part of the equation, then like we would have no interdependence. Yeah, it's I, I'm not an I'm not an economist, but like I would say I would define like a layman's definition of globalism, I would say anytime you are consuming goods or services that are being produced outside of your community on a large scale, you're engaging in globalism. Okay. I, I think that's a fair definition. If, if some economist is listening and they're cringing, sorry about that, but oh, yeah. I feel, think we'll- Feel I, free to call in, right? Yeah, now. right. I, I think we'll roll with that. Okay. Awesome. So- so this is this is something that we generally think of as something that has to be modern, because how could you like one of the necessities of globalism needs to be cheap shipping, right? I mean, a, a product made like you're already at a disadvantage if you are like making a product outside of your community in that you need to have it shipped into your community, right? There are there are soft obstacles to overcome like tariffs and like socio-political things like maybe a country doesn't get along so good with uh with your country and so you know there's there's that to overcome but you know shipping is a hard a hard cost there's nothing you can do about it right and it's so it's got to be cheaper to ship from far away to your community than it is to make the thing here in order for globalism on a large scale to really be occurring yeah, and you know, let's just. I think that's an interesting place to just talk about for a sec. Is that when you ship something, there's all these dangers, especially if it's going overseas. What if that ship goes down? What if pirates raid my, uh, you know, boat and so forth? So there's all this risk associated by relying on something that is coming from far away. So when we think about why it would be more advantageous. The only thing that can really come to mind is labor costs, like just having Roman citizens or having people that are living there. Oh, there's there's many reasons why it's advantageous. It could be labor costs. It could also be um, that the place that you're having it shipped from, the the material is more plentiful or, or just a better quality. Ah, you know? okay, yep. I mean, like think of food. It's not necessarily cheaper 
to grow, let's say, avocados in California than it is to grow them in New York. But you will be able to grow more avocados in California than you will be able to in New York. Right, exactly. Yes. Because just the climate better fits it. Another thing, another thing that I, I want to point out here is that like you owning a piece of like, let's say like Chinese artwork is not globalism. Goods that can literally only be produced in one region, specialty goods, is not globalism. That kind of trade has always existed and will always exist. There will always be a market for like expensive single, not single use, but like single purchase items that can only be gotten in like in one place. Right. Now, this is interesting. So, you know, like I think of like wine that always comes and there's like plenty of, you know, vineyards in California, but then Mm -hmm. the French will kind of poo poo and be like, oh, ew, California wine. That's so cheap and stuff. This is the real deal here. But in fairness, like we don't really need to rely on the French for their wine. Like we're capable of growing it here. So would you kind of consider that like vanity trading? Like, well, I just want to drink French wine because of the prestige or because it's grown in this very sacred valley or or something? It depends. So it's like, on the one hand, if you are buying fancy bottles of wine, if you are like, I need, you know, I only drink champagne which means it has to come from the Champagne region of France. Yes, yes. Like (laughs) wine lovers and pedantic people love to point that out, right? Oh, if it's it's only sparkling, it's it's sparkling wine if it comes from anywhere else. If it comes from the Champagne region of France, it's Champagne. Right, Right. exactly. I've heard that so many times. So if you are buying Champagne because you want Champagne, the, the, the... from the champagne region drink then that is not globalism Mm. that is just trade if you are buying sparkling wine from france because it's the same quality as the kind you can get in california but it's cheaper or a better quality and it is comparable in price that is globalism okay i got you i got you yeah because it can get it can get very confusing and I think definitely in the ancient world, it mm-hmm. probably was more like certain regions did have certain natural resources or certain certain like abundances or, or certain proclivities to making things that probably could not be made elsewhere. So it probably made- Oh, we, we still have that today. We're not above that. I mean, um, certain specialty foods are only grown in certain regions. They don't grow anywhere else. Right? Yes, yes. Climate, we're still a slave to climate. That's uh, for sure. You, one thing, if you if you have any like kind of like weird niche hobbies, especially in the world of computers, you know that like certain peripherals are made better in certain regions of the world. Like right. for example, really good keyboards <laughs> come from Taiwan, Taiwan and Taiwan only. I don't I know. know why, but that's I, where they come from. Right? I know you're. We'll we'll do an episode on uh, mechanic keyboards. I oh, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> As I know, I know that you're a huge enthusiast when it comes to that. Uh, yeah. Okay. So sorry. So you're right. But so yeah. But so it's like if you so to to give like one more example, it's like if you if you like Turkish food, right? Let's say mm-hmm. that, and you have an authentic Turkish coffee machine that comes from Turkey, that is not globalism. That is just trade. You're like, I want this thing. It can only be made here, so I'm getting it here. However, 
if you're if the figs in your grocery store that you just use for everyday snacking also come from Turkey mm-hmm. and they could come from somewhere else, like you could grow them here, you just choose not to, that is globalism. Okay, gotcha. All right, so right. it could be con- it could be convenience. It could also be we just we're just not capable of producing that particular good in this, right. in this area. And like I said, throughout history, there like no matter what era of the world we're in, uh, probably not even like ancient Greek. Even by the time of the ancient Greeks, this was the case where there was a trade for like rich nobles to buy things from you know, faraway places for a premium price, right? Yes. Like, like, like the Greeks and the Romans wearing Chinese silk. Right? Yes. That's the, not globalism. And dyeing it in purple, which I'm sure. I mean, <laughs> yeah, purple was a really expensive color back then. Um, oh, yeah. That's how, Car- that's one of the ways that Carthage was able to get so rich is because they kind of had like monopoly on purple dye. Yes. Yeah. Imagine All right, Mike. Let's jump in and, and discuss, let's talk about those purple dyes and what exactly these Romans wanted from the world. Right, so so the kind of globalism we're talking about is the kind that occurs from getting products cheaper and better and then having them shipped. And this, the way, there's a couple of ways to do this, right? The main way that we generally do today, and that was done back then, is something called the economies of scale. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with what that means, but it basically means that certain products, most products, can be made cheaper if you're selling huge quantities of them at once. This is how, in the modern day, we get around the the cost of shipping. And it's, it's how they did it back then, too, right? It's like the cost of, of hiring a boat and getting bodyguards and then sailing and then getting sailors to sail the boat across the world does uh once it makes no difference if you're shipping one crate of goods versus a thousand crates of goods oh yeah absolutely because you're paying all this money like who's going to pay all this money to ship 10 pairs of shoes you might as well try and ship a hundred thousand pairs of shoes right and so if the cost of shipping if the cost of a pair of shoes is ten dollars and the cost of shipping is a thousand dollars and you ship one pair of shoes that one pair of shoes costs one thousand and ten dollars if you ship a thousand pairs of shoes now each individual pair of shoes is eleven dollars and that's doable right Yes, yes, absolutely. I'm one of these fans. Every time I go to the grocery store, I'm like, let's get everything that we need for a week because I don't want to I don't want to drive on back here for a long time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's good that you bring up the grocery store because even in the grocery store, we understand this concept where like you buy in bulk, it's cheaper. The raw materials are shipped and then they're assembled somewhere closer, right? Sure. But so so that's that's the um that's the idea, right, is, is you're shipping lots of stuff. You want to take advantage of the economies of scale. Now, this can be hard if you don't have a built-in client base, right? But luckily, Rome is a, at, at some level is a welfare state. And they have the bread dole, which is the, Rome gives its citizens free bread and free wine and free oil, the three things necessary to sustain human life. And fish sauce, you know, fish sauce, booze, and bread, and and uh, olive oil, you know, uh, <laughs> and um, if you're and 
the the Roman state would essentially compel companies to do this. They would be like, if you want to sell your goods in the borders of Rome, you need to supply Rome with this much food. We'll just say product, this much product for free. No, not exactly for free. They wouldn't pay you, but like you would get tax breaks. I see. I see. So we discussed earlier that like, so were there tariffs coming in? So if a company was, you know, um, importing these goods into Rome, did they, did they pay tariffs up front or how, how did that kind of work? Oh, absolutely. Rome had a very, very advanced, uh, taxing and tariffing system. Rome taxed people. It wasn't a tariff that the concept of that wasn't, didn't quite exist yet, but it was, um, it was more like uh, they would tax people who were coming in and then they would tax people as they would leave and that kind of acts as a tariff. Rome knew that they had a, a, a wealthy enough citizenry that everyone wanted to kind of sell to them, right? And that's kind of like the allure of sort of being like the richest country in the land is that you can charge people a tariff or, or basically an admission fee to kind of sell to the Roman citizens. It's the same thing as it is today, where like the United States is like the world's premier consumer mm, mm. and everyone wants access to the U.S. markets. And it's, it's happening now with some with other countries, too, where like people want act like Google and Facebook like chomp at the bit to get access to Chinese markets. Right. Yes. Facebook is desperately trying to expand into Indian markets for the same reason. And so these countries have a lot of pull in, in what, uh, what they can make these companies do, how much they can make them pay, and, and what they can make them give to have access to that um, like consumer base. Yes, yes, yeah. The, the, we have a lot to talk about, but I want to keep learning about Rome, and then I, I see a good conversation about NAFTA coming up. But <laughs> No, you're 100% right. This is... NAFTA and, and trade agreements like it are not new. They are as old as, as, as countries themselves. So Rome has a need for large amounts of product to be moved, and they are willing to pay in, in one way or another. These companies to, they're not companies, the, the, the idea of a company doesn't really exist yet. Uh, let's just say businesses to make this product and ship it across the the peninsula of, of Rome and, and actually, you know, actually all over the their their territory. And so you're getting, like I said, you're getting paid in one form or another here. And you have all of this product that you have to deliver. Rome, the state, because Rome is a unified state, is taking care of a lot of stuff for you. There are lots of things that are going to add cost to your and, and I guess we should talk about that too, is like, what else makes globalism hard? What else makes trade hard? How about security? The more you have to ship stuff, the larger the danger is of pirates, bandits. You have to pay for, for people to guard your things. That costs money. That will increase the price of your final product at its end destination. Someone who's making it locally won't worry about that. Now, did these companies have their own private security or did they have to rely on the Roman state to provide that security? It's a little of both. It's a little of both because on the one hand, they probably had some amount of bodyguarding, right? 
uh, like that's just the way things were done back then. No, nowhere was like totally safe, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but on the other hand, uh, the days of Julius Caesar, famously, they cleared the entire Mediterranean of pirates. That makes it a lot easier to ship stuff and not have to worry about being your goods being stolen. I that's see. less security for you to hire. Pompey Magnus uh, cleared the Mediterranean pirates. Augustus Caesar also uh, took like a huge chunk of the piracy out when he was kind of in control. Uh, that kind of security within the borders makes trading much easier, much cheaper. Cheaper trading means cheaper products. Cheaper products means the economies of scale works better. Got it. All right. Well, those are tax dollars well spent. I'll, you yeah. Know. <laughs> Another thing, roads. Who builds roads? Roads don't, uh, you know, manifest out of nowhere. Someone's got to make them. And uh, if you have no roads, like let's say you're trading in, in Germania, uh, where, you know, like with the barbarians, they don't have uh, roads. And so you can't bring like carts full of product because carts have wheels and wheels need to be on roads. Mm, right. So you, you have to do it by, let's say, horseback, right? Or if you can do it by wheels, because, you know, there are like sturdy wheels that can go over dirt roads, obviously. Those wheels are more expensive. They break more. You'll have a higher frequency of breakdowns, right? All that kind of stuff. So having roads makes it better. You can, you can spend less on transport. And then also infrastructure beyond roads would be like um, uh, Germany. Uh, Rome has like horse refueling stations. Things can move in, in Rome through Roman infrastructure. Product can move incredibly fast, faster than you might think to the point where something could go from like North Africa to like Northern France in like a week. Now, this is really – now, I, I always knew about Rome and their wonderfully paved roads, but this is interesting that there was actually, like, rest stops and checkpoints no, and, like – That's exactly right. So it's, like, you, you – it's not something that you think of very often, but you have to realize that, you know, not to, not a lot of people in Rome drove cars, mm. right? Um, <laughs> yeah, like, not a lot of them. Probably, probably less than 10% would be my, my guess, right? Most of them – if not all of them, rode horses. And horses are, are animals, and they can't run forever. And so, like, with no rest stops, no infrastructure, what you're basically doing is you're riding a horse until it's exhausted, and then you're camping for the night. What they could do, what Roman messengers would do is they had these rest stops, and official messengers of Rome, you would ride until your horse was exhausted, and you'd get to these rest stops, and you'd swap your horse. Oh, wow, that's grab a new horse and go, right? And so uh, a messenger could ride all night long, you know, going from stop to stop, keeping up a pace of like 20 to 30 miles per hour the whole time. That's incredibly efficient. Wow, wow, wow. And, and then, so the rest stop would just take ownership of that horse and then yep. let that horse rest up and then rent it out and, to somebody else? That's... Yep, and then they take your horse, they give you the next horse and off you go. Wow. Wow. So there's a lot of, a lot of work that Rome is doing to kind of funnel that trade in. It's not, it, you know, and, and of course having a market that's worthy of people trying to break into. That's exactly right. It's, uh, you're getting it. You got it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, 
a combination of Rome has this amazing infrastructure that allows for goods to be transported quickly and safely, and Rome has a huge consumer base, people hungry for products. And so what ends up happening is these, these uh, entrepreneurial businessmen will take Rome up on their offer, and Rome says, like, we need a hundred pounds of grain for the bread dole. And then Rome will go, okay. So, or they'll go, okay, I'm going to load up a hundred doles of a hundred pounds of grain, but Hey, my ship can hold 500 pounds of grain. And I already have to make this trip anyway. I know I'm going to make money on the hundred pounds already. So there's, a, I'm not taking a risk. Let's do it. Load it up. And then we'll make, once we're there, we'll make use of the, um, the infrastructure to keep selling our goods. And so low risk, low cost of entry and like large consumer base equals globalism. Got it. All right. Let's talk maybe about some of the unpleasant aspects of this because most of these companies that did this, they were like owned, I guess, by Roman citizens. Would that be correct to say? Yes. Okay. So we talked previous on some previous episodes though, that Rome did have made also a lot of money by waging war and taking oh, over places. So yeah, yeah, waging war and taking uh, people's natural resources over. So to be very clear, this was a wonderful system for the private Roman citizens who owned these companies, but it wasn't such a great relationship for the people who had those natural resources and then had to surrender those natural resources to these companies that were making like huge profits. Um, no, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't agree with that. I wouldn't say that. Okay. Yeah. Um, these people are very happy to be able to sell their goods and services across the, the empire. The, the people who are, I mean, everyone's happy, frankly, the, the, if you want to talk weaknesses, the major weakness of this would probably be that it makes the regions dependent on each other right and when that infrastructure starts to collapse um as as it does in the fall of the roman empire the 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 economies of scale dissolves well let um, me let me ask you this question if this was an advantageous um relationship for these conquered territories why did they even fight back in the first place because a good portion of the populace would turn into slaves if they got uh, conquered. But so I guess the, then my point stands, though, because if they're slaves, right, like if, if they had remained an independent nation that was like setting the terms of trade with these corporations, then they, they could stand to make way more profit than if Rome comes in, enslaves all of these people, and then Rome sets the terms of how that so, is going to look like. It's not about the economic policies here. It's more about just being turned into a slave. For the most part, the nobility in these areas benefited greatly from being Romanized. And being Romanized means getting access to Roman markets, right? And they were thrilled with that. The reason they fought, uh, especially early on, is one, to preserve culture and dignity. And two, because there was a decent chance you'd wind up as a slave. Uh, okay. Rome, Rome traded all the time with, with outsiders. Um, 
Rome traded with the their barbarians uh, over across like Hadrian's Wall in in um, in northern Rome. Rome um, traded with China through the Middle East. Um, there's really interesting documentation of like Rome's description of like the Chinese, and then there's like Chinese descriptions of Rome because they were aware of each other, right? Right, right. And they did trade indirectly. They never directly interacted. They, Parthia, uh, Seleucia, they were the ones who kind of like were the go-between for the Silk Road. Armenia was an independent state on and off, and uh, Rome did trading with them. Greece, before they were assimilated into Rome, you know, they traded with them. So yeah, for sure, Rome, Rome did that. In terms of uh, like advantages and disadvantages of globalism, which I think is, is what you're, you're kind of getting at here there aren't really like i mean there are obviously some local business but that's the thing is that globalism on this scale it's not like like the the shipping company that's shipping olive oil is not amazon they are their own small ish business from just another region that's able to produce more product better because of like maybe the region that they're in or it's superior. Like pretty much everyone is benefiting here. The people who are like living in England are getting cheap ceramic plates that are of higher quality than they could make in their own region. Right. So like, yes, uh, technically maybe the people who were making the plates in England before England was assimilated into Rome are now not making plates anymore. But even that is probably not true. They're probably making specialized plates that are like really fancy and they're doing the like, you know, the made in USA thing. Right. 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 They're but the general motors of England. <laughs> I, I no, they're, they're like, I mean, we see it all the time in the U S right. We have like products that are basically things that you could buy anywhere, but they're like, they're $10 more expensive. And their whole selling point is like made in the U S that, that existed back then too. People are, are flourishing under this. If they weren't, it wouldn't be so widespread. It's like, you know, you could be a family in England and it wouldn't be uncommon. So that's, that's, this is where, this is where globalism is really shines is like, we're not talking about like the nobles using like fancy Chinese silks. We're talking about like a normal Roman family who is eating food that's grown locally or sorry, food that's grown in Sicily off plates that are made in North Africa, drinking wine from Southern France with silverware made in Spain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's not because they're just so rich that they can afford all this stuff. It's because that stuff is comparable in price to what can be made locally and it's better quality. And this is where globalism really shines is this idea of like, let the people who are best at it do it. Definitely. And and I think that the people, uh, the citizens of Rome definitely are on the receiving end of the benefits because they get 
things that are of much of just as you said higher quality at a much lower cost it's, it's like the same thing with like televisions for example they used to be in the u.s extremely expensive like people would wait years before they could afford to go from a black and white television to a color tv that was a huge deal like yeah. if you were growing up in the 60s buying a color television meant you were pretty well off whereas today people okay 500 dollars for a new 4k whatever people don't even think twice about it because we're able to kind of manufacture them so cheaply elsewhere. So you're right. I think the people that are living within within the recipient market country do kind of benefit from those lower prices. Absolutely. And it's it's in theory anyway, it doesn't have to be large companies that are doing it. It just needs to be the the cost of shipping and selling needs to be com- uh, competitive with the cost of making it locally. And that's where that's where they were at. Mm-hmm. Um, the downside is that interdependence, though when everything's working, it's you get all these benefits. The, the increased complexity of the economics makes it more unstable. Well, actually, so it makes it more unstable and it makes it less unstable. So the, another thing actually that I want to talk about with globalism is in Rome too, is that like they could do things like enjoy out of season food because it's not grown in one place. This is something that we enjoy. This is something that we don't even think about, that you're buying avocados in the dead of winter, even though avocados can't grow in this climate. Oh yeah, I love my bananas in the winter. Exactly, (laughs) no, exactly. This is, to me, it's mind boggling that Rome had this, that Rome was already had such an advanced economy that like you were, they were enjoying wine outside of wine season because they just grew it in places where it could grow. But even though it's stable in that way, it's unstable in the sense that like, if you start messing with the supply chain, then the cost goes up and then suddenly it becomes prohibitive to do this. And as Rome's infrastructure began to fail, so too did their ability to move goods and services across their empire. So like, I I guess towards like the end when these roads were no longer financed and there was probably a greater risk that some barbarian or pirate would come and take over that, like all, all that liability, all of that risk, all of that additional cost. If the service stations are no longer there, all that adds up for these companies and they just figure, you know what, it's too much of a risk and it's too much of a hassle to ship it from Northern Africa to here. We could probably just do it on our own. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, that's the thing though, is that it's not as good they would do it on their own, but the product would be inferior. And then like, you have no choice but to like, not enjoy bananas in the winter because you're not having them shipped in anymore and uh, you can't grow them where you are, right? right? It's not the right season. Okay, th- this is actually a really good place to pause because I think there's there's a very nuanced distinction that we need to talk about here. And I think, you know, like when we relate this to the United States, I think you are 100% correct that like, we need to grow bananas elsewhere. We need to grow certain things, you know, certain things must be made elsewhere. There's just no way about it. And if we tried to make it here, it would just not work. It would just not be of the same quality or just that region in particular is known for the best. Okay, let's just give it to the French. Maybe, Maybe their wine is just truly, far superior than anything that we could ever grow in the Napa Valley. Okay, let's just say that is true. I think that the concern, and and this is the concern that I have, and I think many other people 
have here in the US, you know, maybe even the people who voted for Trump, is this idea that like, is it necessarily like cars, I think is the thing that comes to mind is like, is it such the case that German and Japanese cars are that much better than anything that we could possibly manufacture within the US? Or is it just sheer laziness or sheer greed of these companies that don't want to pay an American worker, you know, 35 bucks an hour? So that's that's where I kind of that's kind of like the new and it's a very nuanced distinction because I think in the case of Rome, like they're just having, you know, having those porcelain plates or whatever. I mean, yeah, that can only be made in China. It it just speaks for itself. I think the distinction comes when we have the ability to make something at home, but we just choose not to because it would be, we don't want to pay a certain group of people a certain something in order to do it. Yeah, that's definitely, especially in the modern time, that's like the dark side of globalism is like, um, it lets you, it lets companies go to regions that have more, more exploitable resources, right? Like you could be like, oh, these people to have no workers' rights. So we'll just scoop them up and turn them into modern day slaves to get our, our stuff done. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's you know, that's no good, obviously. Um, the idea in a perfect world, the way it works is regions can become specialized. The you, globalism can create something from nothing. If you take if you lower the cost of transportation to zero as just a hypothetical, imagine a world where imagine a world where like you are a very good fisherman and you can catch 10 fish a day and you're like a mediocre farmer. And in the same amount of time that it takes you to catch 10 fish, you can, let's say, uh, farm and then process and bake five loaves of bread. And let's say I'm the opposite of you. I am an excellent farmer and a mediocre fisherman. So in, you're gonna, you are going to split your day and so you're going to catch five fish because you can usually if you do spend the whole day fishing, you're going to catch 10, but you're going to split your day. You're going to spend you're going to catch five fish and you're going to get two point five loaves of bread. And then I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to make five loaves of bread and I'm going to catch uh, two and a half fish. So between the two of us total, we have. What did I say? 2.5 loaves of bread from you plus uh, five from me makes seven and a half loaves of bread. We have seven and a half loaves of bread and seven and a half fish. In a world where globalism, it, it, assuming the cost of trade is zero, which is a big if, but for hypothetically, we could talk about it. I can do all the baking and all the farming, and I will make 10 loaves of bread per day. And you can do all the fishing, and you will get. 10 fish per day. So now instead of 7.5, we get, we're getting uh, 10 each. Right. Right. Better. By, by trading, we can have the exact same amount of product as we would have had if we did it alone, plus extra plus surplus. Right? Absolutely. And as a fisherman, I only need to focus on the things of being, a, I only need to buy the things that make me a fisherman. I just have to focus on my boat, my fishing pole and so forth. And as a baker, you only have to invest in the things that make you a baker. Whereas when I try and do both those roles, I end up spending more money buying the equipment and buying the the resources it takes to kind of wear those, you know, to wear both those hats. Right. And, and to, to, to make up the difference, we just trade. Mm. And so what ends up happening is now 
so I have 10 loaves of bread. You have 10 fish instead of seven and seven is that's, that is a decent chunk extra. And that's how it's supposed to work. But you are right that it's like, there's a dark side to it that requires like kind of careful. That's where government needs to step in and start tipping the scales to be like, we're not going to allow you to 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 ex- to do this because you're exploiting people. I think trade is is a is a very very delicate balancing act, and it goes far beyond my own head. Like I have no idea how to get this this magic combination oh, right. <laughs> you know, one thing, and this is something that actually I think actually comes up in in Marxism a lot, is this idea that. In order, in order for these markets to remain viable, the people of those markets still need to be producing something that gives them income in order to kind of yes. enjoy. And this is this is like a, a Marxist argument that, like, if for example, let, let's just say we go hog wild and decide, U.S. is not making anything at all. We're not making anything. Everything, even even our IT services, even our customer service. Even all of those things, we're sending it out outside of us, right? Mm-hmm. When we do that, we actually become a less desirous market because if people don't have jobs and they don't have income, people aren't going to really want to sell to us. But they're like, well, the people in the U.S., they're all broke. They, they can't really buy what it is that we're producing. And that's actually like a very delicate balance. I'm wondering if Rome had anything similar where they reached a point where maybe their citizens were, you know, if you have like a welfare state, if you have a state that, yes, those people a part of the welfare state get their basic sustenance, they get their bread and they get their olive oil and so forth. But do they really have that like extra disposable income to start buying porcelain plates and and things of that sort? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good question. And you're not wrong that, as the the inequality rises, um, they become a less valuable market. But I don't think they ever crossed the line until the fall of Rome. I don't think they ever crossed the line it, all the way into like, we don't want to sell to Romans anymore. True, true. But you don't want to go complete like Ming Dynasty and have no trade and just like shut everything down. And, and just mm-hmm. because, you know, again, if someone else is we're also talking about innovation here. If you don't partake in any form of trade, you're also missing out on innovation. That's kind of why China fell so behind, you know, like people were inventing guns and doing all sorts of technologically advanced things. And they kind of said, thanks, but no thanks. And then that kind of actually led them to be susceptible to being taken over because they were so technically, you know, if you don't engage, if you just, if you're an ostrich with your head in the sand, you're going to miss out, and then you're also going to become extremely vulnerable. So I think you you have to always have one hand in the game. What I think is the balance here, and I think this is maybe the part of the equation that the U.S. is losing, is that we we need to be really producing something as well as trading. And I think that's what we're, we're actually missing out on is I think that when we get to a level where no one wants anything from us, there's nothing that we're kind of exporting out into the larger world and creating jobs and, and, and so forth. That's where we fall into a dangerous category because then we're just selling ourselves as being this giant market. But eventually it comes to the point where no one, you know, the people in this market are just too darn poor to really buy anything. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I, I think that everyone needs a niche to to produce so that you have some kind of bargaining power. Yeah. Yeah. One last thing before um, before we close this episode out, I did mention NAFTA 
earlier. And, you know, in the mid 90s, Bill Clinton and, and, you know, and the Democrats and definitely the Republicans all sold us this idea that tariffs are a really bad thing. Like just tariffs are, are bad. Trade, there's going to be so much more job creation, so much more trade and just more economic prosperity for not only uh, Mexico, but for the United States as well. If we just did away with tariffs, you know, under the Trump administration, he tried to end NAFTA and he tried to bring back tariffs. I personally kind of like tariffs. This is just my feeling. Again, I'm not really an, an economist and wouldn't consider myself, but I do think that we should kind of nudge ourselves a little bit to try and produce a little bit more at home when, when possible. And sometimes when we eliminate tariffs completely, it really just makes us unnecessarily reliant on countries for things that we could kind of produce at home. I, I don't know. I, I was wondering if did you did you have an opinion about tariffs at all or I think you're I think you're right on the money. I think that there's so tariffs is basically just uh, it's just government intervention, right? It's it's communities kind of like uh, manually messing with with the trade balance, right? It's like we talked about how um, we talked about how like security and infrastructure lower the cost of shipping goods while tariffs are humans ways of increasing it. It protects the local businesses, but it hurts the local consumers. So sometimes yes, sometimes no. I mean, like we'd have to talk about like a specific product, I think for me to have like a, a really strong opinion. Like let's talk about like, I don't know, computers. Right. Sure. So like computers are made best in Asia for whatever reason. South Even Korea. Even mechanical keyboards? Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, processors are the raw, the rare earth metals are more abundant in China. They're more abundant in Korea. It's not just a labor cost thing. It's also like they have the business and infrastructure set up to do it better. That's something that people often don't think about when they're like, oh, this is made in China because it's cheap. This is made in India because it's cheap. It's like building a textile factory is expensive. If they were already doing it and they already have the infrastructure set up to do it, it's cheaper for them to keep going than for you to build your own factory. Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes the barrier to entry is, is a lot for a product that people are not willing to pay a lot of money for. So with computers, it's like a tariff for computer parts would be tough because, well, we just can't really make great computers here. You know, we, we have some factories, but we don't have, we're not set up to scale up at the level of consumption that the, even the U.S. would require, let alone the world. Right, right. So it's like someone who's making computer parts here might favor a tariff but it would hurt the consumers overall. The prices would go through the roof and it would stifle innovation since we don't have, we would have to start by like basically reinventing the wheel, which is not something that we would want to do. That doesn't really benefit us. I think that tariffs are best used to protect people, not businesses. So like maybe like, so like, let's say like a good use of a tariff in my opinion would be like, you know that a product is made using near slave labor. And so you're going to put a tariff on this product 
to make it cost as much as the, the product that's not made with slave labor to take away the advantage that using slave labor offers. Gives. Yes. Right? That's a good, in my opinion, this is opinion. In my opinion, that's a good use of a tariff. I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think industry specific tariffs is probably the smartest way to go when you're trying to curtail, when you're either trying to protect jobs that can be easily done within the U.S. or to curtail some kind of horrendous behavior such as child slavery or child labor in another yeah. country. I, I think you're absolutely right about that. And I think that's a delicate balance that we don't even strike upon. Right. But like in the event of like, I, I don't think like, quote, protecting American jobs is a valid reason for a tariff. If like, if, if someone is doing the same job in another country and is making comparable money for where they live and they're making a better product, then I mean, like you, why? Right. Then, but then, you know, for every job lost, then we have to give that person something else to do. Yeah. And then actually, <laughs> as I'm saying it, I'm thinking to myself, the other thing that I'm not considering here, let's say you're in, in a country and, or you're a country and you're like, I want my country to start getting into the computer products game. You're going to need tariffs at the beginning because you're, while your nascent computer industry is spinning up, things are going to be more expensive. But you need people to buy them because you you need to give them some some seed money to like really get going. Consumers are not smart enough to be like um, like oh yeah I'll buy from here because my country is trying to get into the microchip game. You are 100% going to need to um, find some way to force people to buy this local product. We're going to start making computer parts and then we're going to put tariffs on outside computer parts. Because we want people to buy these computer parts from this country so that these local companies can get money to expand their businesses. And we suspect that in, let's say, a decade, our, our, our local business will be good enough to stand on its own and we can remove the tariff. Right, right, right. right. So that, there you need a tariff. But then on the other hand, if you're, if you're thinking like that, you could wind up with situations like, like the Great Leap Forward where you basically have – you just wind up with a really inferior product. And you wound up like handicapping your country because, uh, you know, uh, it turns out you never were going to be good enough to do this one thing. You know yes, I mean? you were forcing people to manufacture. So I think maybe tariffs make sense when there's already a very robust business model within that country already. So if you already if you're already doing something and it's really going well and and you're making it well and the workers are making money, then it may make sense to keep that tariff there. It may not make as much sense to just artificially put tariffs for your pride or your ego of like, well, we can make it better here for just no reason at all where it could right. easily be made better elsewhere. I think that's a fair compromise. We're definitely not going to solve the trade war on this episode, but I doubt it. <laughs> I, I think I think I think I think we made a little little headway there. Um, Brett, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Aaron. This concludes the 15th part in our series, Rome, the Decline of Democracy. I'm Aaron Azrod.